Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for today's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members share their career journey, highlighting notable aha moments along the way. My name is Melanie Smith, and I'm the director of the ASHP section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners, as well as the Pharmacy Student Forum, and I will be your host for today's podcast. With me today is Matthew Boyd, a medical science liaison with Janssen Pharmaceuticals. And thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew. Thank you so much, Melanie, for having me. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Of course. So let's go ahead and get started by talking about today's topic, and that would be your experiences as a medical science liaison. So Matthew, just to start off, why don't you go ahead and give the listeners a little bit of background about your current practice site as well as your professional responsibilities? Well, Melanie, that's a great question. One, I would say my current practice site is actually uh, fully remote. So I actually cover the Mid-Atlantic Territory for Janssen Scientific Affairs. And basically what that encompasses, it encompasses the state of Delaware, Maryland, Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, uh, most of Virginia except the Roanoke area, and then it also covers all of West Virginia. So in this role, I predominantly work with health institutions, predominantly uh, looking at your academic institutions in the area, as well as community institutions to uh, convey medical information regarding the products that Janssen is currently marketing. Um, specifically, I cover leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloid malignancies. So our major product that we have that's currently on market is actually Imbrubica or Ibrutinib. Uh, but then I also cover a lot of our pipeline agents as well. So when we're developing clinical trials, I'll work with those different sites and I'll even recommend sites in some cases that have the ability to recruit patients. Um, so we have a, a strong pipeline in B-cell malignancies, but also in acute myeloid malignancies as well. Um, and then we also are doing some research in pediatric malignancies, specifically in ALL uh, for some of our products also. So that's kind of the major responsibilities that I have, but then I also do a little bit extra on the side too, where I am the diversity and clinical trials ambassador for the leukemia lymphoma myeloid team as well. So that really puts me in a position where I'm actually conveying information to our team and getting this spread down throughout the team regarding some of the initiatives that Janssen is focusing on, specifically when it comes to recruitment of diverse patient populations. That's been a really strong focus for Janssen since 2019, and we're still building it out. So that sometimes looks different in different malignancies, but one of our goals is to, of course, recruit uh, patients from diverse environments, of course. So that includes rural and suburban and urban environments, but it also includes recruiting patients and having our recruiting be stronger in recruiting patients of African-American descent, Latino descent, Native American descent, and that also encompasses our LGBTQIA community as well. So that's another strong passion of mine as well that I've been able to be a part of while I'm at Janssen. Oh, that's really awesome. I'm actually working on a project related to leading health equity and healthcare um, inequities. And I love to hear that you all are recruiting um, diverse patient populations for your studies. So awesome. Yeah. So you and I met several years ago, randomly. Um, and at that time, you had just started pharmacy school. 
And now you are doing big boy pharmacy things. And I love, I love to see it. But was pharmacy something that you were always interested in, particularly this area of practice, you know, as a medical science liaison? And how and when did you decide the time is right for you to transition from something that was more patient care full time to what you currently do right now? Melanie, that's, that's another fantastic question. And in all transparency, Melanie, I, I met on an airplane. I was literally in my first year of pharmacy school uh, studying up my top 200 <laughs> drug list. And I'm studying flashcards. And Melanie leans up with me, are you in pharmacy school? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, oh, well, I'm a pharmacist. And I think at the time you were with a different company. Uh, but honestly, when I started pharmacy school, or let me back up a step. My introduction to pharmacy was actually on, on a, a whim from a recommendation from my mother. My mother, um, at the time I was an undergrad, and my initial thought was my uncle was a firefighter and I, would, I wanted to be a firefighter. And my uncle told me, he said, well, if you're really serious about working in patient care and getting an opportunity to work with patients in a healthcare environment, go get your EMT certification so you can get introduced to working in that environment and see if you actually really like it before you invest all this time and money and resources in chasing becoming a firefighter. I took his advice and I, I received my, uh, or I earned my EMT certification over the summer. And at the time, there weren't any EMT jobs to actually apply to. All the jobs were taken. Um, there weren't really many listings. And my mom saw that there was a listing for a pharmacy technician role at a hospital in the area where I grew up. So I applied. My mom said, well, you know, who knows? They, they need someone with medical training. They'll train you on the job and you'll get introduced. So I ended up earning the job uh, to become a pharmacy technician, was trained, ended up earning my pharmacy technician two certification and had a fantastic experience being introduced to the pharmacist role within the health system. That was a fantastic experience because this was a teaching hospital that had pharmacy residents. It had practicing pharmacists rounding on floors. It was a very progressive time in the early 2000s that I was able to work in. And even though as a pharmacy technician, I had many different roles and responsibilities that really uh, encompassed what I enjoyed about a fast-paced environment, learning every day and, and on the fly, honestly. And through that process, I decided, I think I could do this as a career. Personally, I kind of put it on the back burner. I moved to Atlanta. I graduated. I moved to Atlanta. I spent a couple of years in Atlanta. And then I said, you know what, I really want to invest in myself. And what do I, what am I most passionate about? What did I actually enjoy doing the most as a professional? And this time I'm probably 24, 25 at the time. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to pharmacy school. I'm going to get the, get the last credits I need. I'm going to go to pharmacy school. So I earned the credits. I started at Shenandoah University, uh, Bernard J. Dunn School of Pharmacy where I completed my PharmD uh, education. And, and actually, while at, in pharmacy school, I, I always gravitated more toward oncology. It, it's funny, a, a colleague recently reminded me, do you remember first year when you said you wanted to become an oncology pharmacist? And I said, I, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> and it was, a, a, you know, we had a you know, laugh. She's like, you're actually doing it. And this was a couple of years ago we had this conversation. And so after I completed my, my PharmD, I actually applied to a couple of different uh, residencies and fellowships. I strategically only applied to three because I, I wanted to focus specifically on gaining more clinical experience. I also wanted to earn my teaching and learning certificate, and then I also wanted some leadership opportunities. I ended up being able to earn my fellowship at Howard University, where I was the 
ambulatory uh, clinical care fellow uh, for Howard. And I specifically focused predominantly in health disparities, but I also had a focus in, uh, that was my research focus was in health disparities, but I also had a focus as far as a clinical background in oncology as well as in psychiatric care. And I then also had the teaching component where at Howard, I was actually able to help coordinate a couple of classes, specifically in oncology and in psychiatry. And then after that, I, after completing my fellowship, I joined MedStar Georgetown University Hospital as an oncology pharmacist. While at Georgetown, actually, the opportunity came available where they were looking to place a pharmacist in the Lombardi Cancer Clinic. At the time, they were looking for a pharmacist to help round and, and provide different services, specifically when it came to uh, clinical discussions with providers, but also uh, clinical counseling with newly started patients on therapy. And I was able to step into that role. I actually started a smoking cessation clinic while in that role with a nurse practitioner. Um, we uh, ran a smoking cessation uh, starter, starter clinic on Thursdays. Every Thursday, we ran it in clinic and we would see patients uh, right there in the Lombardi Cancer Clinic. After spending a couple of years at Georgetown, the opportunity came to me to actually join Parkview Cancer Institute as the oncology pharmacy manager or supervisor. And in that role, I managed a group of seven pharmacists and five technicians and really had a fantastic experience when it came to the day-to-day -day operation side. You know, we did everything from creating protocols and developing protocols to developing processes and procedures uh, to refining, you know, the, the, the delivery of care that we provide as far as a, a pharmacy team. And then honestly, Melanie, out of the blue, Jansen yeah, came a call and a recruiter found me on LinkedIn and said, hey, what would you think about possibly joining Janssen Scientific Affairs as the medical science liaison? And I'll step back because I, you know, while I was doing my, completing my fellowship, I was recruited or I was trying to find recruiters to recruit me to become an MSL. <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't have much experience. I was just a fellow. I was coming out of my fellowship and, and I didn't have any opportunities. So I always thought about thought that I wanted experience becoming an MSL and, and stepping into that role just because I thought I would enjoy it and I thought I had a unique skill set to provide. But really, that ex all that other experience, you know, completing the fellowship, working at Georgetown, working at Parkview really prepared me for becoming an MSL and stepping into a role where I have the autonomy to create my own schedule every day. I have the flexibility to do things that I would not be able to necessarily do in a clinical environment, but also have the the responsibility to be a medical expert in my field. So uh, my providers and the, the healthcare professionals that I work at expect me to be the medical expert. I'm the person that needs to come to them and explain to them why we did a particular clinical trial in this way. What was our thinking on the background of that clinical trial? What were the prognostic factors that we thought about or that we considered for this trial? Uh, what does this mean for, for our uh, the treatment landscape that we're currently thinking about? Is this treatment landscape changing, you know, or is this more of this is another, uh, you know, step in getting us to change the landscape of treatment for this particular malignancy? Um, so those are all the things I enjoy um, in, in my current role. And hopefully that kind of gives you a background on where I was and now where I am and, and, and hopefully uh, where I'll be for a period of time. Who knows? No, I love that. You covered so much. And I th a couple of things. One is that you planted the seed 
early on that you wanted to be an MSL. And even though it didn't work out at the time, you still were open to other opportunities, which subsequently helped you get to where you need to be and gave you the foundation so you could be, you know, a better MSL right now. So I think that's, I think that's great. So let's shift gears a little bit. We've had, we've all had those moments in our life or along our um, practice career journey that have helped define us and shape the impact that we want to have on the profession of pharmacy, be it with our patients and or any sort of student learner that we may encounter along the way. So can you share one of those aha moments and um, was it something that you expected and how did you respond? You know, my aha moment, I would have to say, was predominantly, you know, when I was completing my fellowship at Howard. Howard had a fantastic experience, and I tell people this all the time. I did more with less at Howard than I've done in clinical practice. Um, And when I say more with less, I had such fantastic experiences Um, I work with uh, providers, uh, Dr. McCoy Beach, she and I work together in the anti-quag clinic and also in the uh, diabetes clinic. It was called uh, La Clinica de Pueblo, uh, where we were helping patients of Latino descent manage their diabetes. Uh, We managed patients directly in the anti-quag clinic inside Howard Hospital. I had the experience of starting a pharmacist and psychiatrist-driven clinic in the Washington, D.C. area for uh, patients with psychiatric disorders. Um, And we predominantly focused on patients who were either homeless um, or were transitioning between between homes um, or patients who were returning citizens. So they had a particular stint at some particular time in their life in the uh, jail or prison system when they were trying to return and, and go back into society. And then lastly, my, my, probably my, one of my best experiences and why I'm still in oncology is working under Dr. Frederick Lombardo and being able to have that opportunity to work under him. Dr. Frederick Lombardo, his claim to fame has always been one, he's a fantastic pr- professor and clinician, but at, this, at one time he was one of the only pharmacists to have all five board certifications when there were only five board certifications that you could have. But but working with that group of people and seeing what they were able to do with less really got me into the mindset of you can do what you want to do if you put your mind to it. You can take this little bit of what you have, and if you plant the seed, if you continue to plow the land and till it back and prune it back, you can accomplish many things and more than what you thought you would have been able to accomplish with the little that you started out with. And, and that, it, you know, was was probably my biggest aha moment that I've had. And I've kind of used that throughout my career when I think I don't have enough. I think back to that time at Howard, and I say, OK, hold on. I was able to do all these little things that sprouted and grew out of something else. And, you know, one of, one of the things I'm probably most proud of, I was invited to, to talk to a group of power students recently kind of about my experience as being an MSL and, and, and I was talking to them about uh, the psychiatry clinic and they were like, oh, you're the one who helped start that. So it's still going. So sometimes when you plant those seeds, other people take them on and it continues to grow and continues to grow. And I'm just happy that I was able to plant the seed to start the work and other people that were able to continue it on and, and, and entrust it to other people to do it. That, that's probably one of the best representatives of work that you you're able to complete is you complete something then other someone else takes it on they continue to push it further Um, so that was a fantastic experience for me 
Oh, I love that. I love, again, planting more seeds and then really the emphasis of if you really want to make something work or to see something happen, even if you have just a small amount, you'll find a way to do it. So congratulations. And I'm, I love that, you know, the Howard students are still putting into practice something that you started a while ago. So our next question really deals with, you know, you can talk about pharmacy, you can talk about, you know, your life, you know, personally, if you feel comfortable, but we've all been through it. The last 15 months between the COVID-19 pandemic, now we have vaccinations, and then of course, concerns around social justice. How have you responded and what changes have you been able to implement both in practice and at home? And what have you learned about yourself, your colleagues, and your family? Well, you know what, that, that's a, another really interesting question, Melanie, because I, I think that one of the things that I thought about a lot as far as joining Janssen was the culture. You know, I've always talked to people or I've always thought to myself that I wanted to join a company that was aligned with my thoughts and my perspectives when it came to justice and not just social justice, not just racial justice. Uh, you know, but justice and making sure that I'm aligned with organizations that believe in the same. Um, and having the opportunity to work with Janssen, which is a part of Johnson & Johnson, and having our CEO, Alex Gorsi, speak out the way he did forcefully, you know, post the, the killing of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and supporting Black Lives Matter and the Asian uh, and, and protesting against uh, Asian hate. Those are all things that I'm aligned with and, and that I agree with and that I want to support. But I'll take it a step further as far as how that culture filters down is, you know, when I joined Janssen, you know, I kind of joined right in the middle of the, right, right at the beginning of the pandemic. I started uh, with them last year. So during the pandemic year, and one of the things I found with joining that group of team members was the fact that first time in my career that I had a, uh, a, a, a European American come to me and ask me, hey, how are you doing, you know, with everything that's going on and George Floyd and Brianna Taylor, how are you doing? And that spoke to me about how this culture from top down filtered down to an employee that thought in their mind, I need to ask my colleague who I'm supposed to be his mentor, <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be helping him on board, how he's doing personally, how these other things are affecting him and that, you know, that that was really a testament to me about the culture at Janssen, culture at Johnson & Johnson, but more importantly, probably the culture that the team had developed through the leadership. You know, and I, I point to the leaders as far as our scientific director at the time, but our, my field directors at the time um, really cultivated and they purposefully continue to cultivate, they continue to do the work. Uh, we started a, a group called Open and Real, and Open and Real was just an opportunity for people to get together every Wednesday after work to get together via Zoom and talk about what was going on what, or what was top of mind. What have what, what are they thinking about or, or how are they feeling? How are things landing on them as they happen in real time? And we've talked about everything from, of course, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and you know Asian hate. We've talked about critical race theory. We've cultivated multiple different conversations. We've talked about uh, the Jewish-Palestinian conflict. We've talked about lots of things. And really, it's talking about them from a perspective of wanting to understand, not coming to the conversation with answers or problem or, or solutions, but really saying, I just want to understand more about it. I, I'm, I'm uninformed in this area, and I want to understand more. 
so being a part of this team has been just uh, amazing, honestly. It's, it's, it's really put me in a place where I feel so excited to come to work every day, but not just to come to work, but to show up at work as my full self. And that's great. And I like that you are in a situation or in an environment where you don't always have to feel like you have to be the strong one. So I think that a lot of times as Black Americans, we always feel like we have to hold it together because you don't know if it's, if, if it's um, comfortable to talk about things or, or what. But I think with your mentor really taking the time and asking you a personal question and seeming to be genuinely concerned, you can break down that wall a little bit and be a little bit more vulnerable, which will ultimately help your team function and then achieve the end goal of the organization. So I like how all of that put together. Yeah, I'll just add on one thing, Melanie. You know, part of that was, you know, not only did we have those open and real conversations, but then we also developed a, a book club where we read um, how to how to be an anti-racist. And hopefully we'll start reading uh, medical apartheid. So, you know, we read this as a group and then coming back together and discussing a couple of chapters at a time. And, you know, this is a group of, you know, sometimes 15 to 20 people and with all differing backgrounds, searching for understanding and, and getting understanding from these books and saying, I didn't even know that was an issue. Or I didn't even know this happened in history. So mm-hmm. when you're able to have those conversations and people come from a perspective of wanting to understand first, and then comes the conversation, hey, I didn't know this was even accurate or real, but it is. And, and that that was so enlightening to see team members who said, I didn't even know that this was happening to African-Americans. Right. Or I didn't even know that this was the background uh, of the history. Because, you know, if we're honest uh, about the history that we teach in our country, it's fairly, you know, the lowest baseline that you can either have when you're thinking about K through 12 education. So most of the education that takes part is either self-education through reading historical books or documents, or maybe you took a course in college or multiple courses in college and you got that education. Lastly, I'll point out another thing that we did in our team, and this, I have to give my team member Adobe a ton of credit because we started a story time for kids where we would specifically select diverse books about you know diverse backgrounds and we would bring kids together children from from different team members would get together and we would do story time with kids normally it was at uh, noon on a Wednesday or Thursday during the week but we usually would do it once a month and we have continued that process of getting families together around a book to read it and see kids light up about diverse backgrounds being talked about. And then we sometimes would even talk about, okay, this is what this particular background means. You know, when you're talking about different holiday times, we read a holiday book that had multiple different holidays represented in it. So we want to be able to expose our children to these backgrounds as well so that they understand that these people are just like me. They just celebrate something differently. Yes, correct. And then one thing that you said earlier that I want to highlight is that when you're having these types of conversations or interactions, it's that you're not trying to find a solution. It's really more about learning and educating yourself so that we can all live together, you know, for lack of a better term, harmoniously. Uh, but really, like you just said, you know, we're all very, very similar. We just, there's just a couple of nuances, be it my faith, be it my skin color, be it, you know, my sexual orientation that makes me a little bit different. But if you take the time to learn about those things, again, we can all come together and be um, as one. Such a we are the world moment. 
<laughs> so my last question for you, let's take it back to a little bit more about pharmacy and you or your personal life, whatever. What does the future of the profession look like and how much of anything or of, um, of what we've been through during the last year and some change should be implemented as we move forward? You know, that I, I believe is it's an exciting time for pharmacists. I, I truly believe that. And not just for pharmacists, but for the profession, for pharmacy technicians. I sincerely believe that. I think COVID has highlighted the, the role as a pharmacist, as a provider, as a pharmacist, as a healthcare professional that provides a service that should be reimbursed for. Um, and, I, and I think the, the profession horizon for the profession looks very strong. There's lots of work done by ASHP as well as APHA regarding pro the provider status initiative that has already taken place in a couple of states. Uh, I know more and more states are enacting legislation to allow for pharmacists to be reimbursed for services that they provide, but also think it's pharmacists also empowering our technicians where you know, you saw during COVID, all of a sudden states started allowing technicians to vaccinate. Now, you know, so we're seeing a shift in the role of the pharmacist from a clinician who is going to have to provide clinical information to patients and providers, and, and then also provide clinical decision support for that, those providers. And then we actually have to have our technicians step up to provide some of those more hands-on ancillary services when it comes to providing those vaccinations, you know, and I think that's a exciting time for us to be thinking about how do we keep this momentum going? How do we not rest on, okay, well, we did really well. And all of a sudden these companies were hiring more and pharmacists are happy with their jobs. I, mean, I don't want to be in a position where I'm just happy. I want to be in a position where I'm pressing the profession forward in a, in a position where we're empowering pharmacists to do more with their skill set. I tell people all the time, I don't think it's our goal as pharmacists necessarily to want to take on any other any other profession's responsibilities. I think our goal has always been that we want to be valued for the services that we're already providing. So th th that's really where I feel like the profession is going and moving toward and I'm excited to be a part of it. And, and I'm excited to be able to advocate for any opportunities that pharmacists are looking for in the future. That is a great place to end. You know, you are like maybe the fourth or fifth Practice Journeys podcast I've done during these COVID times. And everybody says the same thing. We have to get provider status <laughs> and use our pharmacy technician. So good to know that that theme is consistent among everybody. Well, I think it's, you know, when I think about provider status, we have to really think about, you know, this is a long time coming for pharmacists. If you're thinking all the way back to the omnibus bill of, I think, of 1991 and 92, you know, we're, we're talking about 30 years ago that pharmacists really started providing a service that we weren't necessarily being reimbursed for. And that omnibus bill required us to do counseling. And now counseling has become a, a service that we've provided and haven't always been reimbursed for. We provide services in health institutions where, you know, already you can look at practice, you know, oncology practice where pharmacists are, are sometimes, in some cases, the ones seeing the patient at that initial diagnosis, that, that initial treatment. Pharmacists are the ones following up with the patient and seeing the patient and the hospital or the health institution is not always able to bill for that pharmacist's time. So those are the things that pharmacists have to really advocate for. But then also you have to say, okay, how do we recruit better technicians? You know, I know one of the things that I worked on while I was at Parkview was how do I ask my, phar my pharmacy technicians who are on the front lines of, combine, of, of preparing chemotherapy or hazardous drugs, how do I 
advocate to get them reimbursed more for their services because they're on the front lines of making this therapy that that sometimes they're probably doing one of the most hazardous jobs in the hospital. How do I make sure that they're being appropriately reimbursed for what they are doing and the service they're providing? So part of this also was have to be a conversation of what do we expect from our pharmacy technicians and how do we reimburse them more for their services? but also how do we actually capture the reimbursement for the services that we're already providing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that is all the time we have today. And I want to thank you, Matthew, for joining me to discuss your experiences as a medical science liaison and really just your career journey overall. So thank you so much for sharing both your professional and personal perspectives. And we will see everyone next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. 